Welcome to EDS at Union Now. Dr. Ben Chavis is a union alum and the president and CEO of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, a trade association of more than 200 African-American-owned community newspapers from around the United States. In this just conversation, Dean Douglas explores the realities of racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and the role of media and churches in dealing with those inequities. Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary and the Bill and Judith Moyers Professor of Theology. I'd like to thank you all for joining us for today's Just Conversation. I am especially pleased to welcome to the conversation the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis, current president and CEO of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, the banner organization for over 230 black newspapers, the former executive director and CEO of the NAACP, and he was one of the wrongly convicted Wilmington 10, which speaks to his deep commitments to justice as a longtime civil rights and racial justice advocate dating back to his years as a youth. I could go on and on and uh, introducing Ben, but that would leave no time for the very important conversation before us. And so I simply want to welcome my friend, former classmate and colleague, Dr. Benjamin Chavis to this conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. And um, I'm just gonna say, Dr. Kelly, listen, and Dean Kelly, thank you so much uh, for giving me an opportunity to be on this program. And I hope that this is the beginning of a series of uh, dialogues about justice, about uh, equality, about freedom, and about empowering people, not only in America, but throughout the world. Well, I promise you that it will be. And so let us let us jump right in. We find ourselves, uh, Dr. Chavis, in some unprecedented times in many ways. And of course, we see at this moment in time, once again, our democracy uh, being at one of its most fragile states. One of the things that brings us to this moment is that we have an outgoing president who has not trusted uh, the election and who has challenged the votes of uh, many in our electorate. It's no accident, perhaps, that the votes that are being challenged are coming from predominantly Black cities. There seems to be a history of this when we talk about it in the context of voter suppression and also the nullification of Black votes. How do you perceive what is going on now in terms of the attack upon really uh, the Black electorate. Uh, what do you see is behind this? Thank you. I, I believe that the current uh, tactics, the current strategies led by the, the current president, uh, President Trump, are designed to not only suppress Black votes, but to suppress democracy itself. Mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind, democracy works when it's participatory. And even before the election, uh, you know, there was a campaign to uh, prevent people from registering to vote, uh, keeping people from voting, a number of precincts were closed, a number of precincts were 
uh, timed and a lot, sometimes when people go show up, machines weren't working properly. But by God's grace, black folks, uh, in spite of the tactics of voter suppression, went to the polls in record numbers. Um, we have more people to vote in the 2020 election than ever before in American history. Uh, that's good for American democracy. And so the question is, uh, these attacks on Philadelphia, Detroit, uh, Milwaukee, uh, Atlanta, and other cities where Blacks are, uh, are concentrated, uh, it's just not on those cities. It is, it is an attack on our system of democracy. And I think going back to the days in our early days of the Civil Rights Movement, when we fought to get the Voting Rights Act, it was to overcome uh, not just a Southern strategy, because remember, Malcolm X said that the South, in terms of voting, was anything South of the Canadian border. The whole country was the South. And so this is a systemic problem uh, that we still have to uh, make changes. I'm hoping that the new Biden-Harris administration uh, uh, will appoint a czar on voting rights. I know he pointed a czar on climate change and environmental rights, which we definitely support. But I think voting rights is so fundamental uh, to having a democracy. Uh, and so I'm hoping that not only uh, Black people will continue to struggle uh, for voting rights, but Blacks, whites, Latinos, Asian, Native Americans, all constituencies need to weigh in on this subject. But, uh, you know, I think that in particular the role of Black women, I just want to say, uh, Dean uh, Brown Douglas, that I'm so proud that uh, Black women stood up and help lead the charge to black families, black communities, not only in Georgia, but across the country. And in those cities that they're trying to demand a recount. But interesting, every time they recount, there are more votes uh, for Biden and Harris. So to me, that's God at work. So they're not going to be able to change the outcome of the election. But it does show you how pivotal and how important the vote is. You know, there was some misinformation, miseducation in our communities trying to discourage black people from voting, saying that the vote didn't count, uh, you know, trying to dissuade. And of course, we have to be careful in today's media spectrum because there were a lot of social media channels out there discouraging black people from voting, particularly black males. And unfortunately, some of them got caught up in the misinformation. Yeah, so I want to I want to follow up on a couple of things you've said here. First, first, let's talk about before we get to the Biden Harris administration and some of the issues uh, in that regard. Let's follow up on this thing about uh, misinformation and the way in which uh, not only in this election, but previous elections, the black community has been targeted yes. uh, in terms of misinformation because of the significance of the black vote and particularly the black female vote. We know that black women have, uh, I like to say saved our democracy uh, once again, but we know that black women vote at high numbers, vote as a block, uh, typically 90% uh, black female women uh, in the electoral vote democratic. We know they vote at a higher percentage uh, than black men. So what, with all, knowing all of this and knowing the way in which the black uh, electorate is typically targeted uh, for suppression or misinformation, what, uh, Dr. Chavis, is the role of the black press? What, what role must the black press play 
in and and really disseminating and empowering the black electorate and getting uh, this misinformation uh, machine, as we will, under control. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this year, uh, Dean, the black press is 193 years old. We first published, they're in New York City in 1827, Freedom's Journal was first published. So for the right. last 193 years, the black press has been on the front line of not only publishing the news, but being also an advocate for justice, an advocate for freedom, an advocate for equality, an advocate for empowerment. And yet, uh, we also have been targeted because what was happening is that there was a lot of distrust uh, sold in the mindsets of some of our people in our communities, uh, mainly brothers, but some, some sisters too were kind of misguided by the misinformation out there. But uh, we were able to overcome it. So the role of the Black Church, to, be, to answer your question, is to speak truth to power, not only to ourselves, but also to the larger community. Um, we did a study recently and, and found out that not only do Black people read the Black Press, but all people, because they want to find out what, what the Black people are thinking, what we're moving. And we even had some attempts uh, in our social media channels. Some of our channels were hacked by uh, uh, far right wing groups trying to pretend like they were black. They were using lingo, slang, slang language. And so we reported them to some of the uh, media channels. So we are also a guardian of what is in the interest of uh, black community. And for that, over the years, we've gained the trust. We, we say that the black press is the trusted voice of right. black America, but that trust has to be earned over a period of time. And, we, and that's something we're proud of. That's something that we hold on to. Uh, to because to me, uh, truth has to be always uh, distinguished. Truth has to be lifted up. Uh, out of the fog of uh, misinformation, uh, truth does have the ability to pierce it and to stand. Well, it's interesting in your uh, response, you accidentally at one point said the Black church. And then you yes. went, and so- Well, and, and actually the Black press grew out of the black church. That, that's right. Yes. And, and so uh, there's always been a symbiotic relationship. In fact, the major distribution of black newspapers around the country is still the black churches. Right. You know, in terms of distribution, we reach about uh, 20 to 30 million people a week uh, in our dissemination. Uh, so, you know, because of digital age, there's not many newsstands now, or news where people go to the block and get on news. So you have to get it at your doorstep or you get it at your church. But now with COVID, everything is virtual. So we had to figure out a way how to disseminate this information also using digital distribution as well as print distribution. Yeah, no, and, I, and you, you made the point so well, this relationship, uh, that this historical relationship between the black church and the black press, and they have been the two most, tr most trusted uh, yes. institutions in our community. And yet we've seen the waxing and waning of both of those in terms of their influence or their viability, and particularly when we're talking about the black press, right? So what, before I move on, what's, what's the strength, the viability and the visibility uh, of the black, black press today? Because it becomes so crucial uh, as that trusted arm along with the black church uh, at this time in the black community. Yes. Well, we have 230 African-American-owned newspapers, and I'm pleased to report to you 
that 50% of our newspaper owned by black women. There you go. Uh, we keep you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, a lot of our papers are second and third generation. And right. so the spouses of the founders that run the paper, their grandchildren now, uh, it's pretty evenly spread out between male and female ownership. Also, there's a legacy there um, that I've encouraged uh, journalism students, uh, particularly at, at HBCUs and other places, to always consider working for the Black press. It's a great place not only to get an apprenticeship, to learn um, uh, not only how to write, but what to write and how to distribute what we write. So there's a viability, but I'm gonna be honest with you, when things digitally occurred in the marketplace, it was a big challenge. A lot of our newspapers did not have the staff or did not have the infrastructure to compete in the digital format. So over the last, this is my eighth year now with the NNPA, we've been able to establish the NNPA digital network, which incidentally is the largest black owned digital network now in the country which complements our print. It doesn't put the print out of business. It makes the print much more valuable because we're in an age where content is, is king, or should I say content yeah. is queen. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, is, is how to get the distribution of the content. Like we're doing this program now on Facebook. The thing is, this content should live beyond this 30 minutes uh, in terms of social media where people can go see the link and repeat it. Because one of the things I've learned in working with the black press, and I just shared this with you, that we need, we need repetitive um, uh, distribution of the truth. Right. Uh, when we speak truth to power, we have to do it every day, not just once a month or not just at election time. And again, uh, one of my concerns with the black church as well as the black press, I think there's certain symbols of the democracy that we have to rescue. Mm -hmm. uh, the right wing, uh, um, kidnap the American flag. When you're, mm -hmm. you're ever talking to them, they're always talking about well, for the American people, for the American people. Well, are they speaking for all of the American people? You know, uh, American people are diverse, you know, uh, multiracial, multicultural, uh, different uh, 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 sexual orientation. Uh, it's a panoply of diversity. And to me, our democracy is as its strongest strength when it, it is at its most diverse place. Not at, so it's the politics of inclusion, not the politics of exclusion. And that's what we just witnessed in this current election. And then there's a, still a struggle, uh, even in the aftermath of what happened uh, in the national elections, uh, as you lead up to the inauguration of the next administration, there's still a struggle. There's still this tension about, are we going to have a, a multiracial democracy, a multi-ethnic democracy, a, a pluralistic democracy? Are we going to have more exclusivity, which leads to suppression and which leads to inequality, which leads to mass incarceration. I just go down the list of things. When people talk about systemic racism, it's all these systems working together. It's not one system. It is a network of systems that uh, prevent people from uh, uh, ex uh, fulfilling their God-given gifts, destinies, and talents. So which leads me, and you've worked for years in all of these areas of which uh, you have spoken about, and of course, you know intimately uh, the 
problems with mass incarceration and yes. uh, an unfair uh, justice system, given your history and fight uh, in terms of being free uh, with the rest of the Wilmington 10. But yes. let, me, let me shift a little bit and ask very briefly, so as you raise these issues and as we see this incoming uh, administration, uh, uh, what are the most significant uh, issues that you think they need to confront should be their priorities, particularly in relationship to the uh, Black community? Well, uh, number one is voting rights. I think we need to not uh, relax. Uh, I think we need to keep pushing forward uh, to make sure that every state has fair uh, voting rights. Right now they don't. You know, we have blue states and red states, but you also have voter suppression states and voter uh, encouragement states. So voting rights. Secondly, I would say uh, we need to deal with criminal justice reform, which mass incarceration is a piece of it. Police reform is a piece of it. Judicial reform, you know, it's interesting. The current administration said uh, about stacking the courts. They are the stackers. They have stacked <laughs> the court with all these right wing conservatives. Sometimes uh, uh, people on the bench who are not even qualified to be a judge have been appointed judge for life. Federal judges have lifetime appointments. So the next administration is gonna to have to, uh, like I would say we, we had when we had to transition in South Africa, we're gonna to have to dismantle apartheid piece by piece because there is an American apartheid that sort of the overarching uh, discussion thing uh, about um, you know, voter suppression and all this, it's a part of a larger framework. Uh, voter suppression is connected to police brutality. It's connected to uh, redlining uh, and the housing discrimination. How we live in a segregated uh, society, primarily because of housing segregation uh, and gentrification. So uh, the retake to the urban centers, you know, and pushing out indigenous residents. All these things are, are, are things that the new next administration is going to have to handle. And of course. There's a discussion right now about the diversity of the next administration. I, I think that the uh, uh, at least the announcements that have been made now say that uh, that women have been taken seriously. Uh, we're gonna have a black woman as vice president of the United States, uh, and we put some sisters in some key positions that we've never been in before. But uh, and I, and I'm sure there will be further uh, diversity and inclusion. But to me, it's just not the top. Diversity and inclusion has to be throughout the government. Uh, there are some uh, bureaucrats uh, that also, I think, need to um, have much more diversification because uh, sometimes the federal government is a massive uh, uh, instrumentality that needs to have uh, new, fresh uh, energy and insight. And I think that there are a lot of uh, people uh, who are very qualified, and I'm hoping that the new administration will be in much more inclusive. Well, <laughs> All that you've said makes it even more important uh, for the black press, the black church to stay vigilant uh, and to make sure that the black community remains vigilant because the change of administration should not mean that we can take a breath and relax. Right. It, it's, Leads me. I want. I want to ask about even as we have these many issues of concern uh, related to obviously criminal justice, uh, 
housing, poverty, all of these issues that impact the black community disproportionately. There's a segment of the black community that is even more disproportionately impacted uh, in all areas. We are more likely uh, to see them homeless. We are more likely to see them involved in the juvenile and criminal justice system. They are more likely uh, to fall victims to homicide. And this is the LGBTQ plus uh, community. We know, for instance, uh, at least 40 trans persons have been murdered this year, according to uh, HRC statistics. And most of those persons have been black. Yes. Yet we don't hear much about this when we're talking about Black Lives Matter. Uh, we don't get hear much about the community that is particularly vulnerable uh, within the Black community. We don't hear about it in the Black church, neither in the Black press. We so don't hear about it enough in the Black press. And one of the things I've been pressing the NMPA to all of our publishers to let them know, we cannot afford to leave out the LGBT plus uh, community. Uh, first of all, these are our brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, they're part of our community. And of course, uh, in the black church, there has been some deniability about uh, even the existence of LB, uh, LGBTQ plus. But the thing is, um, I think that that's something that we have to continue to highlight. I know in the black press now, we've done features on this subject and we're gonna do more. Uh, so that we don't leave out any community uh, of, of the communities in which we serve. I think one of the things that we know that the black community, when we use that term, we ourselves are very diverse. Uh, we're not monolithic. And um, our greatest strength is when we have all of the representation of our community together and not partially. And we cannot afford, if we say we want equality uh, in the, from the larger society, then we have to also treat each other uh, with respect and with equality and with embrace. Uh, and I think that uh, that's a struggle that we have to commit ourselves to and to make sure that we uh, be forthright, not whisper about it, but be forthright <laughs> about it. Yeah, because you know, got to find a way to change the narrative, right? Exactly. Uh, uh, and, and the black press again becomes crucial in that. Speaking of changing the narrative, one of course the crises that we are all in together is the COVID. Uh, uh, 19 pandemic. Again, that yes. has disproportionately impacted uh, Black people and Latinx uh, persons. One of the things uh, that we also know when it comes to the Black community uh, is the distrust uh, in relationship to scientific and medical community, a distrust that is well-grounded historically when we think of things like the Tuskegee experiment and more. And so here we are at this intersection, at this crossroads, where we are on the brink of a vaccine for uh, COVID-19. But we know that there's a high level of distrust in general in uh, the country regarding the vaccine, but even more so within the black community to the point that President Obama spoke to it uh, in a, an interview a couple of days ago, suggesting yes. that he 
would uh, take the vaccine on camera. Uh, how, what's the role of the black press in trying to help uh, not only make sure that the vaccine reaches our community, a community most vulnerable, but that when it reaches it, that the community trusts it. How do we help the black community to build trust uh, right now, just in the vaccine, but in our medical uh, community? Thank you, that's a very good question. Um, first, when the pandemic first started to arise uh, earlier this year, uh, in late February, uh, we, the NMPA, um, we established the NMPA Coronavirus Task Force, uh, made up of uh, some of the leading infectious disease physicians at Meharry, uh, Morehouse, and at Howard. Um, uh, also, Dr. Benjamin, who used to be uh, Surgeon General, she's a part of the task force. Anyway, we got all our Black medical officials together because we had a forecast back then because of the legacy of the Tuskegee Project, the legacy of the, the distrust of science and, and uh, medicine uh, dealing with black people. Uh, we had the same thing dealing with sickle cell. We had a, a, a people, uh, blacks were scared to uh, get involved in clinical trials of sickle cells, although we know that we are disproportionately impacted by sickle cells. So it was in our interest, not only to get involved in clinical trials, not only to get involved in vaccines, when they become, even around flu, you'd be surprised. A lot of black people didn't want to take the flu shot because there's so many myths and stereotypes out there, untruths again about vaccines. So the role of the black press is to gather the facts uh, and present the facts, but also to be an advocate. We intend not to be on the sidelines. When President Obama gets that shot, we're gonna have that on the front page of all of our newspapers uh, and other uh, influences. Uh, because unfortunately, uh, I just want to cite again how the misinformation is out there. Earlier uh, this year, there was all over the social media that 5G gave people to COVID. And that's, <laughs> that's just absolutely not true. And that, 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 mis, that untruth went all over the world. It was global. It wasn't just in the United States where people were, uh, were afraid to turn on their television sets or their laptops because they felt they had this rumor on social media that that was the source of the virus. But again... So we have to always uh, call out the falsehoods. We have to call out the stereotypes. And then I think inclusiveness of trust is, if, if, if black folks knew that we had some of the leading black scientists helping develop the Pfizer or the Moderna or the other uh, uh, vaccines, they would be much more trustworthy because uh, no medical authority from our community would deliberately be involved in the process to harm our people. And that's why I think not only will President Obama take the vaccine, I plan to take it. Uh, and um, I know many others plan to take it publicly uh, to help instill uh, uh, trust. Cause see, trust also is in the context of goodwill. Is this something for the greater good? Uh, and I think it is. Uh, and I'm given the devastation right now, uh, Dean, you know that uh, the mortality rate has been devastating uh, in Black America. That's right. uh, and you'd be surprised, it took us a while to even put on the mask because again, there were different uh, uh, untruths about whether or not you should wear a mask or not, whether or not you should wash your hands, whether or not you should social distance. And of course, even during this recent Thanksgiving holiday, there were some, unfortunately, uh, families who decided that, no, I'm gonna 
have my Thanksgiving done in spite of the science. And but you put yourself at risk, you put your loved ones at risk, and you put others at risk. Uh, so we, the black press, is going to champion this, uh, not only around the vaccine, but also good health. I think this is a good segue. You know what what COVID nineteen exposed, uh, Dean, is that we had all these pre-existing health conditions. Well, where do these pre-existing health conditions come from? Diabetes, asthma, heart condition, cancer. You know, in Harlem, where Union Seminary, 60% of all the children in Harlem have asthma. They're not born with asthma, but they get asthma because of poor air quality. So the intersection, the intersection of environmental issues and social justice is something that we need to pay attention to. So yes, we got to respond to the threat of the COVID-19 crisis, pandemic. But in responding, responding to it, I hope also that we have more discussions about health, about well-being in our community, uh, because we have to deal with some of these pre-existing conditions, uh, because a lot of it is also diet-related, you know, uh, uh, that we, we kind of eat ourselves to death uh, rather than eat ourselves to live. Well, and, you know, and as you've raised, the point of the matter is that even all of those issues, whether we're talking about diet uh, and other diabetes, high blood pressure, other health concerns, are the uh, a part of the comorbidities that is racism, that yes. is systemic racism. Poverty is a comorbidity. Social determinative to health. That, that's right. And so, 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 so that's right. And even as you talked about masking, I there were, uh, and in fact, in a couple of states that I know for sure, suggesting, well, you know, maybe black people ought not wear masks because this is how racism and these in health exactly. intersect. Because and the governor of Florida right now, the governor of Florida right now refuses to issue a mask mandate. Right, but they're saying to the black people that a mask makes you even more threatening, right? And so what do you do? You either get killed by the virus or you get killed wearing the mask because somebody's scared of you. We are at the end of our time, but I wanna end with one question. And that is, as we talk about having these just conversations about a just society and a just world that we're all trying to move toward, what, Dr. Chavis, would a just society look like for you? Well, a just society would be what Martin Luther King Jr. described as the beloved community, where it's just a community where we don't just tolerate one another, but we love each other. Hmm. That's, you know, justice and love are co-determinants, you know, and because if I love you, then I won't treat you unjust, unjustly. If I love you, I won't try to uh, keep you from getting something that I have. In fact, I would share what I have with you if I love you. But if I hate you, if I fear you, if, if, I, if, I, if I have a distaste for your skin color, if I have a prejudice and then I have the power to impose my prejudice to determine your quality of life, that's what racism is. I think a just society is devoid of racism. A just society uh, is a place where the oneness of God is affirmed and the oneness of God's humanity is affirmed. I don't think you could say it any better than that. I thank you so much for this conversation. I know that these will be conversations that will continue because we left so much Absolutely. unsaid. 
And before we close, uh, Dean, I know we got to have another discussion about, I talked about rescuing the flag from the right, political right wing, but we also got to rescue Jesus from the evangelicals. Well, now, <laughs> we've got to, and, and that is a critique upon the faith community. And so, so that's, our ne- we're, that's our next conversation. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin Chavis. And I invite all of you back to join me next week, next Friday for Just Conversations with Zephyr uh, Teachout, uh, lawyer, uh, professor at, uh, of law, and also uh, a former candidate for a gubernatorial candidate as well as attorney general in New York. So I invite you back for that conversation next week. And we'll see more of Dr. Chavis. Thank you. God bless. Thank you.